the confirmation that, uh, that we experienced today and thinking through those things, and also tied in a little bit to what we talked about last week. Um, I kept having Second Peter, the first chapter, going through my mind. It's important to remember that our faith is more than just a belief system. We don't just believe in God and believe in Jesus, and then that's it. Uh, it's really a way of life. And that way of life is learned developmentally and through communal and experiential maturing, which is what we've been talking about. The direction of that path is ordered by God. As we discussed last time, he leads us in paths of righteousness for his namesake. In other words, for his reputation, not ours. Not that we're good people, but that we follow a good God. And the motivation and the ability to walk in those paths are from him as well. For he is in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. But that's not a passive faith. This is not a faith where we just acquiesce to it. The faith is dependent on us as well. That is, we have to apply ourselves to the understanding and the intention of walking in those paths. He does not drag us. He leads us in those paths. So we walk by faith, that is trust, that ultimately works, that faith works in obedience of love. So we're experiencing a coming of age in faith for those children that we dedicated to the Lord so many years ago. And because their struggle away from childhood is similar to our everyday struggle, it's also slightly different. I thought today I would address the need to be diligent in the faith, and that's why this text came, came to me. So if you turn to Second Peter chapter 1, uh, I'm going to simply uh, read it and, and comment on it. We've been through this material before. One of the things is that the, there are several passages of Scripture that are worth repeating, worth going back over, particularly when they lay out a process or a, a direction for us, and this is one of those. So Peter says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and in Jesus our Lord. Interesting. The apostle says that we have received the same kind of faith as they. They didn't receive a faith that's an apostle's faith, and you got lay people's faith. We have a common faith, that faith once for all delivered unto the saints, the holy ones. And all of us are in that category as we walk in the ways of the Lord. He then gives the ironic blessing in a shorter state. He doesn't say the Lord bless you and keep you and be gracious unto you, lift up his face and give you peace. He just says grace and peace be unto you. Uh, the shortened version of the ironic blessing. And in verse 3, we begin to get this section that I want to look at. He says, Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Notice that word, excellence. 
For by these he has granted to us his previous and magnificent promises, so that by them you too may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Wow. We've been calling, we, people get the gospel wrong. The gospel is not going to change the world. Hear it all the time on campus. We're going to change the world. We're going to preach the gospel and the world's going to change. Nope, the world's going to get worse. The gospel is a, hey, get out of there and come with us. Because we're headed somewhere else. We're headed for the kingdom. We're headed for the righteousness of God that will never be done through human effort. He says here, and this is an interesting statement, he says that we may become partakers of the divine nature. In the Eastern Church, they call this deification. That word wouldn't go well in the Western Church. What they're talking about is our being created in in the image of God, but that's marred by sin, and now we're being recreated in the image of God's Son. And in that sense, we reflect the Son of God who is both human and divine. And that we will share in that nature in some, in some way and sense. Well, how do we do that? Well, that brings me to my words for the day, right? Verse 5. Now, for this very reason... Applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. Wow. Kind of gives us the formula. These are interesting words. In the New American Standard, the first one, he said, first of all, he says we're to do this diligently. Uh, That means we're to make this a priority. The the Greek literally says, give speed to this. The old English way of saying this is, make haste, right? Don't dilly-dally, get get on with this. Be diligent, reminds me of of the uh, Shema. You will teach these things diligently to your children, right? It's not a, if you have time, you might want to get around to doing this at some point. This becomes a priority. And so that's the literal meaning. We have to make haste and not put this off. And then he tells us that we're to add certain things to our faith, to our trust of God. The first one in the New American Standard is a phrase that is uh, identified here as, Moral excellence. Now the original American standard, and I believe the, um, the, the initial NASB said virtue. And somewhere in the transition when we moved into the 95, some of the people thought that we needed to put the word moral excellence. The, world, the word means to excel towards something You don't want to excel towards sports. You're excelling towards something of value, and they use the word moral. The problem I have with that phrase is that we have a tendency in our culture to see the word morality as only having to do with sexuality. And while it certainly includes that, 
it includes much more. So I really prefer the idea of virtue. I know that's an archaic word. But, but virtue means that you're excelling towards goodness in a sense that will be defined in these other words. So that's really what he says for us to do. This is behavior that is good and virtuous. It's not just grace saying, well, I've got license to sin. But I have been bought with a price and therefore I am going to glorify God in my body, which is his. That means in my behavior. We're to work to become more ethical and good in biblical terms. I'll talk about that in a minute. And this behavior has to be rehearsed and practiced. I like that the Bible talks about practicing righteousness. Have to practice righteousness. It doesn't come natural to us. Unrighteousness comes pretty natural to us. But righteousness doesn't. We have to practice that. And when we practice that, we begin to form habits. And those habits then are valuable. But that practice is trying to curb something. And you and I know what that is. That's Romans chapter 7. What I want to do, I end up not doing. What I don't want to do, I end up doing. There is this principle of sin in our flesh that says the minute you say, I'm going to follow God and be good and righteous and holy, your body says, you want to bet? Okay? It's the same thing that happens when you go on a diet. You know, every year people go on a diet. I'm going on a diet and the body says, we'll see about that, right? Because <laughs> everything's going to work against it. That's that struggle. And so this is not a matter of just saying, I'm making a decision that I'm going to live a better life. It means that every day I have to diligently struggle against my flesh. And some of us have more flesh to struggle against than others. I won't mention any names, but you know who you are. We know who we are, right? Uh, That's part of this problem. And so Peter says, I want you to strive diligently towards excellence, virtue, biblical virtues. And add to that virtue knowledge. This is not an aimless, ready, go, aim, right? It's not ready, fire, aim. You know the the old joke about that. This is you aim first. And so you have to add to that intention to excel knowledge. This is knowledge of God's word. I am every year more and more appalled at the ignorance of God's word among professing believers made a statement in a class about four or five years ago and a student took me to task on it I said I grew up in a non-Christian home in the 50s and um, I think my family knew more Bible verses than a lot of people who go to church today and this girl got up in the back and just let me have it How can you say that? And you know, smart aleck me, I said, this way, I think we knew more verses. So she went on and and let Dr. Lewis and I have it about we didn't know anything about psychology because she had read an article once. And uh, it's really a really weird thing. There's a lot of people who have zeal without knowledge. They they, They are passionate about God. They want to serve God. They do. I don't doubt that at all. They just simply don't know how. 
The knowledge of following God requires a knowledge of the scriptures. That's why we have to be in the scriptures constantly. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every, every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. 66 books he's given us. A couple of thy words I've hid in my heart? No. Thy word I've hid in my heart. So this knowledge is to know the scriptures. Goodness is not defined by the culture. Virtue is not defined by the culture. It's it's defined by the scriptures. So he says then, I want you to add to your knowledge self-control. We're going to let that one go. Because you shouldn't talk about something (laughs) just academically. Self-control. I used to have a sign on my wall that said, I can resist everything but temptation. Right? Self-control is not easy in a culture that says, however, if you feel like it, then it's authentic and you need to do it. But self-control is one of the fruit of the Spirit. And I think it comes to us as we become doers of the Word, we begin to bring ourselves under control of God's Spirit and God's Word and less to the flesh. And so that self-control is, is what we're looking for in terms of this virtuous living that's there. Self-control is a difficult, difficult process. We live in a world that lets us run wild. That's not consistent with our profession of faith. Got to be reminded of what it says in Ecclesiastes. And it talks to these young men. It says, young man, in your youth, follow the desire of your heart and your eyes. But it doesn't stop there. It says, but no that God will bring you into judgment for all these. In other words, be wise in following the opportunities that you see and the things that you want. Be wise because there will be a judgment of God upon your life. As Paul says, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. He's talking to believers. He's not talking to the world. And we will give an account of the things done in the body, whether good or evil. Not looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to seeing some of yours. I'm not looking forward to seeing mine, right? Or having you see mine. Self-control, he says, add to that perseverance. Personal control has to be built up so that it becomes consistent. And we do that through perseverance and patience. Patience is hard for a lot of us. We have an instant society. We don't want to wait for anything. I'm very impatient on the freeway. Um, I'm impatient at green lights when other people are not paying attention. (laughs) Right? Uh, I want everyone to be patient with me. (laughs) Patience is a tough thing. Patience endures people and it endures circumstances. And it reminds us that God does everything. We love this song. In your time. He makes all things work for good. We love that song. The words of singing. I love singing it. 
It's the waiting on the timing that I have trouble with. Right? Do it now, God. Do it now, God. Do it now, God. I mean, when I see Brenna suffering, I want, I want the resurrection now. I'm done with waiting, right? But we have to be still and know that he is God and that God's timing is correct. That takes faith. You have to trust that that's his. Because God doesn't want us to grow weary in well-doing and give up hope. We can't get ahead of him. By enduring and patiently being steadfast, we establish patterns of character and behavior that bring about the permanence of our spiritual growth. That requires an eternal perspective. You have to see these things through the lens of eternity and not through the lens of time. Because the God who judges is the God who rewards The God who condemns is the God who will say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. He's not just looking for what we're doing bad. In fact, in our case, he's not looking at that. He's really encouraging us to show the family resemblance. That leads us to an interesting word in the text. and That is godliness. This word really means piety. It's really a word for religion. We live in a culture where the word religion is a dirty word. Particularly among so-called religious people. I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. Right? All of that came from the 60's when a guy wrote a book called How to Be a Christian Without Being Religious. Best selling book. Because Jesus didn't cramp anybody's style. Right? This is piety. This is not for show, I'm holier than you. I'm doing it to be seen of men, but before God. Let your alms, let your righteousness, let your prayers, let your fasting be seen by God. Now, we have to let other people see our good works, but they need to understand that our good works are wrought, that great old English word, wrought in Christ. In other words, they're coming out of our relationship with God and not because we're good people. And there are three major commandments that we have to keep in mind. I try to remind myself every day that we love God with all our mind, all our life, all our strength. That's all of us, right? And that we love our neighbor as ourself. I'm to treat the other person as I want to be treated and do good for them in that sense. Very different standard than loving God. Then I'm to love one another, our fellow believers. And that's at the level that Christ loved us, which is self-sacrifice. We're to do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. So holiness, goodness, righteousness, and unity are the three major, what I call the gyroscope that that we walk through. Now we come to a, a word that's very familiar, but for me is... Probably the most difficult of all the words. Brotherly kindness. The Greek, you know the word, it's Philadelphia. It's, it's love of the brother, Adelphos. Phileo Adelphos. This is translated kindly affectioned. 
It means a genuine affection for one another as brothers and sisters. You can't have affection for a stranger. You have to get to know somebody. And your knowledge of each other and your mutual care for each other opens the door of genuine affection. And that affection then can be expressed to one another. And it's normally expressed in words and in deeds and in hugs and in kisses. I'm out of there. You guys know that the gift of hugging is not my gift. I can feel affection for someone, but it's very, very awkward for me to express it. Dropped Brenna and Cheryl off at the hospital. Brenna, she's the hugging bear of the world. So she just grabs me and hugs me, right? Cheryl and I do the dance of the porcupines. I love her to death. But I could... My family didn't know how to do that. Linda suffered for that over the years. It's a struggle for me. Now, some of you have helped me because you were a little forceful. <laughs> you know, dipsticks. You know? And I'm working on it because I feel the affection because I know you and I care about you. But it's hard to do that. But I think we all need it. And I'm going to, that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> no, 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 no. no God. The jury will disregard everything that was said in the last five minutes. The last one is agape, love. This is the ultimate expression of our faith. This is beyond self-control. It's beyond obedience to commands or even genuine affection. It is self-denial for the benefit of another when you can't actually get benefited from them back. I'm reminded always of Jesus' statement in Luke 14. When you have a banquet, invite the poor and the sick and the lame and the people who have no ability to pay you back. Then your reward will be great in heaven. Because you know, we do. I mean, I, I do. I pick up the check this time. They pick up the check next time. You know, it works out pretty good, right? That's not agape. Agape is I take what costs me for your benefit only for your benefit. That's how God loves us. And the more we do that, the more we understand God's love for us. Because what do you have that you did not receive? So Peter, after talking about these things, says this. Verse 8. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord and Jesus Christ. I love the way Peter put that. That's, today, if I wrote that sentence, I'm sure somebody would tell me, you don't write it that way. But you write it this way. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they rend you, render you useful and fruitful in the true knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't say that. What are we trying to do with our faith? 
We're trying to avoid being useless and unfruitful. Because the fruit is produced by God. But we can deter that. And so Paul sa- uh, Peter says, verse 9, He who lacks these qualities is blind and short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. Uh, Jeremy talked about that. This is what a struggle. Do I come to him? Does he, did he bring me? Both are true. How can you want me, God? How can I not respond to your grace towards me? For as long as you practice these things, you will not stumble. I have been a stumbler. I often joke that I've been faithful to God several times. He's been faithful to me all the time. I am struggling to be faithful as he is faithful because I am tired of stumbling. I don't look... I used When, when we were teenagers, we'd sing that. I was sinking deep in sin. Whee! You know that song? That was how we sang it. <clears throat> I now loathe myself for my past. Regret the seeing how far I can get and still stay in the in the community. I've been redeemed with a price, and I want to see the Lord pleased. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him, but that faith must have these things added to it. So he says, in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Now, I think he means the kingdom will be supplied to us ultimately. But I think more than that, the testimony time today and watching these young men read the scriptures is a glimpse of the kingdom. A glimpse of the kingdom. What we're struggling toward in part will be full when the Lord returns. But we don't have to wait till then to begin to experience that entrance into the kingdom. We can do it by practicing these things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that it calls us, Lord, to you.